from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets biblical Christianity face-to-face. And I'm, I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Which camera are we going on? The red one. All right, so we're going to be on that one. This is why I get paid big bucks, because I'm a professional. All right, uh, listen, we have a lot to cover, but we're done tonight. So bear with me, a lot to cover. Let's get through it. We'll begin with a prayer. Father, we uh, need you and seek you in spirit and in truth. We pray that you will assist us with this information. And uh, certainly much of it, some of it, uh, will be wrong because it's coming uh, from my mouth. And, uh, but some of it may be right. And we pray that the spirit of truth will guide us. And it will help us to know you better and to worship you and to then uh, follow you according to your spirit and live lives of love. And uh, we pray for this. We pray for our staff and everybody else who's seeking. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, it's our 13th and final week of When Does the Bible Say Jesus Would Return? I know you're probably over it by now, but we've tried to cover it the best of our ability. And we need to get right to it because Paul wrote more than anybody else in the New Testament, and so therefore Paul had more to say about the return. So let's see some examples, some very powerful examples, and then some uh, simple yet persuasive examples. We're going to start at Romans. Remember, remember, remember the importance of the W's. The W's when you're reading Scripture, and when you examine, you say, who is writing, And, and, and who are they writing to? And why is Paul writing? And where were they when he was writing? And what was going on around them as he wrote? And when did all of this take place? It's vital to a reasonable and responsible way to understand Scripture. Or you could do something that God never tells us to do in the Bible. Forget context. Assign everything to our day and age. He never tells us to. You could do that. Read into everything Paul says as if he's writing to you personally. And all the while forgetting that it is a literal book of historical significance and was covering those people at that time. And we are the recipients of the spiritual lessons that come through that. And, uh, and so try to remember that as we go forward. Don't have to agree with it. Whatever. Romans eight seventeen through 18, Paul writes, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ... If so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. He writes, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Again, the King James Version does a disservice because which shall be revealed ought to say something about expediency, like is about to be revealed. Because the Greek word is test mellow. We've talked about that in weeks past. Last week, we showed how Peter used the same word in 1 Peter 5 1. It's, he, he wrote, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder, and I witness of the sufferings of Christ Jesus, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be, and the Greek mellow is there, is about to be, he wrote, revealed. So we see Paul and agreed on this. Paul and and Peter both agreed that the glory was about to be. That's mellow. And we've shown you plenty of examples in Scripture where mellow always means is about to be. It cannot be a futuristic word. Romans 13, 11 through 12 says, 
and that, knowing the time, that now it is high time to wake out of sleep, Paul writes to those people. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Here Paul gives his readers some direct insight. Almost all scholars agree that when we read the day of which he speaks of here, he's referring to judgment day. So when he says the day is at hand, he's speaking of judgment day. Referring to the day, he says the night is far spent. Okay? So if the night before the day of judgment was far spent in Paul's day to that audience, how could there be any night left for us now? It's been spent. It was far spent when Paul was writing. 2,000 years later, still not spent? I don't think so. And then he adds, the day is at hand. Now, you could obviously say this means really close, but you could say that's just your opinion, Sean. When he says at hand, it could mean 1,000 years or 2,000 years later. So let me give you another example from Paul where he uses that phrase. In 2 Timothy 4, 6, Paul's getting ready to die. And the time was approaching, he knew it, and it happened. And this is what he wrote. For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. He uses that line. Now, if Paul didn't die at that time, and he's still living today, then we know that at hand does not mean it's about to. We know at hand could mean all the way out 2,000 years later. But we know that Paul died, and so therefore we know at hand means very close, right near. This is what he meant in Romans 13, 11 through 12. Now, every futurist on earth has to say at this point, Paul was wrong. This I cannot buy. Paul was not wrong. Man has been wrong in interpreting Paul. Paul not wrong. In 1 Corinthians 1, 7 through 8, Paul writes, listen closely. So that ye come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you unto the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who is he writing to? To them. What does he say to them? He shall also confirm you at the end, and that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul knew the Lord was coming back within a generation and he was preaching it to the people. That's what Jesus had said. He admits first that they were waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, who shall confirm unto you unto the end? Okay, if these people were going to die before Jesus' second coming, then Paul was wrong in his assurances and Jesus did not confirm them, establish them unto the end. Okay. In 1 Corinthians 16, 22, Paul says, If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema maranatha. Okay? It's a, ever hear Christians use that phrase? It's usually the really radical into like robes and sandals and stuff. And, and, uh, and they're just really trippy. And then if you say something they don't like, they say, I deem thee anathema maranatha. <laughs> it's like, what does that mean? But the phrase means something to the effect of let them be accursed at his coming. That's what the translation was be, would be. Anathema we get, right? And, 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 but the meaning of Maranatha is the one we're interested in because many people translate the word to mean the Lord is coming. Okay? So let them be anathema the Lord is coming would be the translation that many people read it today. But the words comes from the Syriac and it's moran ethos and it means the Lord comes, not the Lord is coming. It's present tense versus future tense, a clear indication that Paul was speaking of his day and time and using it. Okay? In Philippians 3, 20 through 21, Paul is talking about the Lord's coming. Then in chapter 4, he uses the phrase we've already discussed and says, let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Remember, he isn't writing to us. He's writing to them. Uh, and, and so writing to them, he's personally leading and guiding and protecting them. In 1 Timothy 4.8, Paul writes, For bodily exercise profiteth little, 
but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. That line is to come is mellow, means is about to come, not is to come. In 1 Timothy 6, 13, 14, Paul is giving Timothy instructions. Remember this. He was instructing Timothy, the younger man. This is what he says to Timothy, the younger man. He says, I charge thee in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, that thou keep his commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's more than apparent that Paul believed Timothy would be around when Jesus returned. It is believed that Paul wrote this epistle around 64 AD, and the signs of his coming were not only evident, the 40 years were almost up when, when Jesus said, not a generation will pass before these things will uh, be fulfilled. If Paul thought that the Lord's coming was going to be way out in the future, he would have said to Timothy, keep these commandments without spot until you die. Keep these commandments without spot until the end of your life. He would have said that to him knowing as an apostle of the Lord that the future coming of Christ was way down the road. He never would have tied this to, to, to Timothy. But Paul doesn't write this to Timothy, does he? He writes, keep these commandments until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, he would have said until you die. But no, he knew the appearing was close. That's why he uses it. Why? 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 Don't we get this? Why? Why? <laughs> <laughs> was Paul mistaken? No, he was right. He was, it's, read it for what it is in Titus 2, 13. Why? <laughs> Paul writes, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and of our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is an interesting passage. I'm not going to go into it. It's, it's very beautiful, but take the W's into account. It's a really wonderful and encouraging passage of scripture to the early saints in the early church. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So he says the great God is going to be returning and our Savior. We know the Savior alone returns. So he's tying in the great God and Christ our Savior in as one. He's showing this amazing passage, reading it today 2,000 years later and thinking it's still lingering out there can produce faithlessness and disappointment and disillusionment. And so, and then once you've bought into it and then you try to step back from it, it's so confusing. But to read it as a historical fact and in context, it's an uplifting story. Paul is uplifting them and saying, look for this day that is coming. Just as Jewish children today are told of David going and fighting Goliath, it's a past event. They're not waiting for David to come and fight Goliath. It happened, and it inspires them, and it teaches them, and they walk a life knowing they have that history. Why can't we view this this way as Christians? That it happened. It's part of our history. This is what Jesus did with the house of Israel. It's part of our, our heritage. We're so grateful that he came, and we're going to talk about his coming and how important it is. I don't know why we can't see it this way. Why? Okay, in Paul's infamous chapter on resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, many people challenge the meanings contained therein, but almost all agree that Paul was writing about the second coming of Jesus when the saints who were asleep, dead, would be resurrected to incorruptibility and the saints who were alive would be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Scholars agree with that. So that is all in there. Paul was writing to the Christians at Corinth about resurrection and how it was tied to the Lord's coming. The book was written about 56, 57 AD. And there were questions about what was the process that was going to happen with the church. And Paul says to them, to them, the believers there at Corinth, behold, I show you a mystery. Remember, they're reading this epistle. We shall not all sleep. Most of this agree, most people agree this means die. 
We will not all die before the Lord's return. This is what he says. He promises this to them in the Corinthians passage of uh, chapter 15. He was literally reassuring them that some of them would be living when Jesus returned. Should they have believed him? Of course they should, because he was called by Christ as an apostle. Notice he wrote, we. So he included himself in the possibility of being alive, that we shall not all die. And when Paul speaks of we versus they in his writings, he he's talking about believers versus non. He uses and refers to the we twice in these passages and says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all die, but we, those of us who do not, shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. He gives an order there. Listen, if all the Corinthian saints died before Jesus came, Paul was a fraud because he says to them, we shall not all die. Okay, Do you, are you seeing this? We have to put it the W's. What, who is he talking to? And his promises were utterly deceitful. But they weren't. He was correct. And those who were alive in 78 were changed in the twinkling of an eye. They were. And all other men since have promised and promoted Christ's return have been wrong. They've just been wrong. It's done, folks. He reigns spiritually on high over his kingdom now. We learned something else from this passage in 1 Corinthians 15. Listen closely to it again. Behold, I show you a mystery, he says. We shall not all die, but we shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, when at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. When does Paul say the resurrection of the dead will occur in this passage? Did you catch it? He actually says that some of those saints at Corinth would live to hear the last trump, trump and would see Jesus arrive. But the order is that before they would be changed in the twinkling of an eye, the dead would be raised incorruptible. And so this places the resurrection right there in the first century too. He says, we, and he says, we will be changed and they which have died will be come with him. They'll be resurrected. He's tying it to it right there. Can you see it? Does this mean we won't be resurrected? Heavens, no. It just means the resurrection promised in scripture and tied to Jesus coming happened then. All people now die and are immediately resurrected, probably in the twinkling of an eye, probably before entering heaven. The only exception to this might be, I don't know, and there's debate on how this happens, is what happens to those who don't go to heaven? Do they get a resurrected body after hell gives up its dead and they stand before the great white throne? Is that an ongoing process? Couldn't tell you. Thessalonians. These are the last two books Lots to discuss because Paul gives us chunks of scripture of information on the subject of the second coming in these two books. So there's, there's like three big chunks. We'll read them and talk about them. First one, 1 Thessalonians 4.13. He says, But I would not have you be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. Okay, Christians have died. They're sorrowful. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Okay? So he's saying with him in the second coming, God's going to bring them with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from the heaven with a shout. And the voice of the archangel with the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words I've given you in this epistle at the church at this time. Comfort one another with them. Were they to read these and comfort one another and lying to each other? In 2,000 years, we're still waiting, comforting each other with these? It's not so. Listen, apparently the saints at Thessalonica were under the impression that the Lord's return was imminent, and some of them, it appears, were upset and concerned that some of the brothers and sisters had died, and they were going to kind of miss out 
on, on the second coming of Christ. Uh, and, and so, in other words, they would miss out on the glory that was about to be revealed, the apostles would talk about. So the saints then were saying, well, you know, what about those who have died? They're not going to be here for the glorious second coming, as Paul and Peter have described. I would suggest that Paul was trying to comfort these believers in the face of these concerns. And what he tells them here is essentially the same thing he told the believers at Corinth saying, we shall not all sleep, we're not going to all die, but some will be changed in the twinkling of an eye after the dead are raised. So here Paul is promising the church at Thessalonica the same thing. And he says, some of them would be alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. And then regarding those who had died, he said, the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then, like he said in 1 Corinthians, those who are living would be changed in the twinkling of an eye thereafter. In these passages, the W's are really important to remember. If we do, we will understand what Paul is saying far more clearly than if we just read and assume he is speaking to us today. Okay, uh, I'm not going to show those passages again. I know it says that in the script, uh, Kathy, Maggie, Merle, Seth. So let's move on. Paul made these promises here in this passage 2,000 years ago. In verse 15, he says something interesting. He says, for this we say unto you, by the word of the Lord, he says, which that we which are alive and remain into the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep, okay? Notice here that there's no if, ands, or buts used by Paul. He doesn't say, and if we're alive, we might, or we could, or some of us might be. He says, we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord. There's no suggestion that there's any question some of them wouldn't be there. Clearly indicating he believed the second coming was coming. Additionally, Paul says in verse 15, For this we say unto you, by the word of the Lord. Now, to Paul, the word of the Lord was the Old Testament. All right? That's one way we could see it. Um, and, but the Old Testament doesn't give us that instruction. So we know he couldn't have been saying the word of the Lord was from the Old Testament. We could say it was from insights Paul received by revelation that when he was taught by Christ in the Arabian desert and learned all things that Christ taught him these things and it was by the word of the Lord given to him that he's reciting these things and teaching. Or the word of the Lord could be that um, he is pulling from the Jesus' very words, his own words, the words of the Lord mentioned in Matthew 24. And I think that makes sense because if you read Matthew 24 and you compare it to Paul's writings here in Thessalonians, he echoes 10 statements that the Lord gives in Matthew 24. Paul echoes them in his writings to the Thessalonians, quoting what Jesus said about the second coming. Okay? Due to time comparisons, we're not going to cover it, but check it out yourself. In these next passages, listen to what Paul says. Remember the W's. But of the times and seasons, he says, by the way, just as a side note, the LDS first newspaper, I think it was the first, maybe second newspaper, was called the Times and Seasons. They took it from this passage in Thessalonians. Why? Because the LDS church was a millennialist church at the beginning, waiting, preparing for the second coming, hyped up like people still are today. And that's why they formulated the church. So they called their newspaper the Times and Seasons. So Paul says, but of the Times and Seasons, speaking of the end times, you have no need that I write to you. In other words, Paul says, I don't need to detail what it's going to look like. You already know. I don't need to tell you the times and seasons. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. And then at verse 4, he says, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. He says, I don't need to instruct you on the times and seasons. You got it. It's going to overtake some as a thief in the night, but not you. You understand. These are reassuring passages given by Paul to these believers, reiterating to them that they are not ignorant. They are alive and awake and informed of his return. If the Lord was not coming for a thousand years or two thousand years more, why is Paul writing this to them in these epistles? I mean, why did the early church need to be reminded if he wasn't going to return for thousands of years later? So we're left with a quandary. Paul didn't know when he was going to return and is making mistakes. Paul did know and he's writing it anyway. <laughs> The evidence is beyond clear. The apostles believed he was on his way. They promoted the notion then. If wrong, why do we trust the rest of the Bible that they write? If right, then why are still people looking for his return today? 
You, you can't make sense of that. Continuing on the same chapter, Paul writes, 1 Thessalonians 5.23, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why does Paul tell us about, uh, uh, why does this passage tell us about Paul's, what does this passage tell us about Paul's view of the second coming? He prays the saints in his care would be kept blameless until they died. No. Until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes. Again, another evidence. All five chapters of 1 Thessalonians ends with a reference to his second coming. If the coming of the Lord was imminent in the days of the apostles, it cannot be imminent in our day today. We have a problem. Let's look at 2 Thessalonians. Begin with 2 Thessalonians 1, 3 through 10. Bottom line, the passages we are about to read show Paul was promising the saints at that time Christ was coming and, and, and would comfort and reward them in their suffering for waiting. The NIV is a much better read of this than the King James. But since I always read from the King James, because we have a lot of LDS people and ex-LDS, we'll stick with that. He says, We are bound to thank God for you always, brethren, at his, at his meat. Because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you toward each other aboundeth, so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. That's context. They're in tribulation. They're in persecution. Paul's writing them and he's saying, good job. We know it's tough. Hang in there. Which is manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. He's saying the judgment's coming on these people who are, who are tormenting you. This is the epistle he writes, promising recompense for the suffering that they're enduring. Verse 7, and to you who are troubled, rest with us. Got that? He's speaking of them right there who are troubled with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, the ones who are persecuting them, and that obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified with his saints and be admired in all of them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. It's all context. It's all right there. That day, them, his coming. Can't get around it. Either he was inspired, led of God, or he's no different than Harold Camping, putting up billboards, saying he's coming. Okay, you decide. One more. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 8. The last week, we showed how Peter had predicted the end in Acts, but that he gave a clarification. He said the end is not going to happen until there was a restitution of all things. That was Peter's clarification, right? And we talked about this, what this would mean. All right. So here in 2 Thessalonians, we have Paul. He does the same thing. Yes, he has been preaching the, the second coming. They had expectations of it. But here Paul details some things that had to occur first. You ready? He says, now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, our gathering that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled neither in spirit nor by word nor by letter from us as the day of Christ is at hand. Okay? Let no man deceive you by any means for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called of God or that is worshiped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. So this is a reminder. And now you know what withholds that he might be revealed in this time. Something was holding the man of sin back. He's saying, you know what it is. For the mystery of iniquity does already work. 
Only he who now lets, letteth will let until he shall be taken out of the way. And then shall the wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Now, admittedly, the King James makes comprehension in these difficult. NAV, NIV is much easier. But since again, I'm a King James guy, will stick. These passages play such a huge role in how Christians view the second coming. We have to just take up one extra minute and try to cover them. And then we'll open up the phone lines. To begin, remember our initial question, which we posed 12 weeks ago. When does the Bible say that Jesus will return? That is our query. And so this is what I'm going to try to speak to through these verses. The first verse lays this out for us, saying, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered unto him. Then in the next verse, he addresses an apparent misunderstanding that the people had about the Lord's coming in that day. There is something going on, all right? There is a rumor that the Lord had already come, okay? Verse two, the King James, James errantly puts it this way, that you be not soon shaken in mind or troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter from us, as that day of Christ is at hand. The King James translates it as, as that day of Christ is at hand, but the NIV, uh, the NASB reads uh, that the day of Christ has come. And the day of the Lord has come, the ESV translates it. And the, uh, and the uh, New King James translates it that the day of Christ had come. They believed he had already come. That's why the translation from the King James is so misleading, because it says, don't be misled or soon shaken in mind that the day of Christ is at hand. It's not at hand yet. Actually, the belief was he's already come. And, and the ESV, which is a very reputable translation, so is the NASB, so is the New King James, clarifies this mistake and says that the day of Christ had already happened. Now, what's interesting about that, think about this, is the believers of that day who knew the signs and knew the warnings were able to go through a period of time and were convinced he had already come. So obviously to those people who firsthand knew what the signs were, weren't saying it was impossible for him to have come. They believed all those signs were present. They believed it was happening right there around them. And we take it like, okay, we've got to see lightning in the sky. We've got to see blood moons. We've got to see this. We've got to see. Th they were like, he came. And Paul's saying, no, he didn't. He didn't come. All right. We'll explain that now. Paul's addressing the notion he's already been there. And, and so, because they understood these statements properly and very differently from the way we understand them and the way we teach them, it's a very interesting thing that we can see. From this alone, I can think we can see that our understanding of apocalyptic language is faulty. That those believers who were tutored by apostles believed that Jesus could have come and the signs had been fulfilled we somehow have made a mistake in how we're interpreting the end time signs that we read about in the Bible. And that's proven by scripture, not by me. Anyway, there's this belief that he had come. Verse three, Paul says, let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come except there be a falling away first and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. At verse four, Paul describes the nature of this man of sin. And he says, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God and that is worshiped so that he as God sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Then down at verse eight, Paul says that this man of sin or lawlessness would be destroyed at Jesus' second coming. We have all those facts. The falling away that would have to have come has been interpreted by many in a number of ways. Of course, the LDS say, the missionaries, well, the falling away was the, the loss of the priesthood on the earth and it had to be restored in 18. That was the falling away and Jesus wouldn't come until that restoration. So the falling away has been a debate among everybody. What did it mean? Uh, I would suggest that the falling away was the saints who fell back into the law. The entire book of Hebrews is about Jews who were thinking of going back and re-embracing the law. That was the falling away that was going to happen before the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, sitting on the throne in the temple saying he is God. The real focus is that. 
Who is the man of sin being revealed, the son of perdition? Of course, this guy has been suggested a thousand ways to Sunday, but nothing has ever materialized in our day and age. The only thing that's ever materialized as soon as this man of sin was, was back in the day. When we go back and look and we study, who could, have possibly this, who could this possibly have been? Paul gives us a little more information on the man of sin and says in 2 Thessalonians 2.4 that he would set himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. One problem with people who say the end is coming right now is what temple is the man of God going to sit in? The man of sin going to sit in? There's no temple. There was a temple then. Where's the temple that, the, that any time he's coming right now, there's been no temple for him to come and sit in and say he's God. So we have to reconstruct this whole idea that a new temple is going to be rebuilt. Do you know something? Nowhere in scripture does it say the temple is going to be rebuilt. Nowhere. It's not in scripture. Where did we come up with that? We had to come up with that in order to make a place for the man of sin who we don't believe has come to go and sit in. It's not in scripture. Do your homework. So if it's not there, why, what are we talking about? Now, the next thing is we call this man of sin the Antichrist. Antichrist. I mean, more people are looking for the Antichrist than for Jesus Christ. It's unbelievable. Who do you think it is? You know, people probably say, I think Sean McCraney is the Antichrist. I mean, anybody who differs with you is the Antichrist. It was so simple. It was geographically centered. The Antichrist was a ruler. Was it Nero? Was it Vespasian? One of them. There's a debate on that, you know, but uh, it, certainly it was someone there at that time. Listen, we think that the term Antichrist is in the book of Revelation. Did you know it's never mentioned in the book of Revelation? Well, I'm sure it's in there. It's not. Antichrist was a term used by John only in his uh, epistles. 1st, 2nd, 3rd John is the only place the term Antichrist exists. And, 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 and John says in those passages that the Antichrist had already come. In his epistles, he says the Antichrist was all around. We have been, we, do we forget that? Look at verse 5 of our text for Paul says, Remember ye not that when I was with you, I told you these things? Paul has been telling them this. They had forgotten. They had been misled. And, but he had told them this man of sin and about the falling away. But, he was not, but the man of sin was not fully operational or in place. So in verse 6, Paul reminds the believers again and says, Now know ye what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. There was someone, something that withheld the man of sin from going and taking his position on the throne in the temple at that time. And Paul is saying, he hasn't done it yet. You guys know what it is that's holding him back. I know what's holding him back, but it hasn't happened. In other words, they knew who the man of sin was. They could identify him. They knew what stood in his way at that time from exalting himself over everything that was called of God or worshiped. Then Paul says to them that this man of sin was already at work or in play. He puts it this way, verse seven. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. This mystery of iniquity is already at play. That's why you know who it is. It's so easy to see. Only he now letteth will let until he shall be taken out of the way. It's in God's hands. And so that, there it is. In other words, the man of sin was already at work in Paul's day. Did you miss this? And then Paul tells them, and then shall that wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, the brightness of his coming. So in our day and age, there's all sorts of opinions of who this man could have been from the uh, preterist view, Vespasian Nero, as I said, but opinions are irrelevant. What we do know is the man of sin is history. He was present there. We know from verse five and six, Paul knew who the man was. We know from verse six that he knew who was hindering the man's power from taking his place in the throne. Since he knew the identities of these two men, we also know he did not reveal their names, probably to avoid persecution. We know in verse six that not only did Paul know the man of sin's name, but the believers in Thessalonica knew the man of sin's name. Okay? We also know from verse five that he was a contemporary figure to Paul and that Paul had already addressed this person to them. He had already gone and warned them and they had forgotten. We know from verse 7, it tells us the activities of this lawless one were already at work at that time. The mystery of iniquity was already at work. And in verse 4, lets us know that he was going to desecrate the temple. That makes sense. To them, to us, it doesn't. No temple. 
So at least we can say anyone who's roaming about saying, I think the end is right around the corner. Syria is being invaded. You see what's happening in Jerusalem? Uh, they're asking us to put marks at the, at the Smiths to buy food and groceries. And all this stuff, you, all you have to say is, there's no temple. What? There's no temple. Well, what do you mean? The man of sin, if you want to be a futurist, he has to sit in the temple and call himself God. The temple hasn't even been built. So get off your high horse, start helping your neighbor, and stop looking for the Antichrist. You know, come on. Okay. The second epistle to the Thessalonians was written around 57 AD. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD. That's a 13-year window period, all right, that Paul was saying this 13 years, speaking of this man of sin. All this proves is that the man of sin was a contemporary. So there it is, my estimation of when the Bible says Jesus would return. 13 segments. I want to thank all the brave preterists out there who have endured countless attacks and dismissals for their work in the area. I have benefited greatly by their courage. These include my brothers Don Preston, uh, Glenn Hill, who all contributed to the Preterists, uh, and anyone who contributes to the Preterist archives online, my dear brother Mark Pazant, and uh, uh, the, uh, the support of my family and friends, who too have had to challenge many sacred beliefs that have unmoored them. And they've been like, well, what? You know, it's not easy to be a seeker of truth. And so, uh, but that's what, I just talked to some dear friends today, and we talked about how that's what God is seeking from us. Not to just go along, seekers of truth. I accept all men and women. If you're a futurist, you're welcome. I love you. You want to hold the views? Fine. Uh, but I would just suggest that in order to truly be free, a person has to be willing to drop the traditions that aren't upheld by the Bible. And, uh, and, and, and that can be a terrifying thing. I understand that. Uh, so this is just one of the mighty traditions that need to fall. Next week, we're going to start in on another one, and that's eternal punishment. So uh, let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413, 590-8413. Uh, we have a spot to show you, and we'll come back. I have some things on the board to just wrap this up, and then we'll take the phone calls. Jeff from West Jordan after that. I would be doing the Lord and every viewer a disservice if I said Mormonism is Christian, because it's a lie. American evangelical Christianity. We're gonna go after its politicking. We're gonna go after its demands. We're gonna go after its culture. We're going to go after its doctrine relative to what the Bible says. I do not believe any Christian has the right to demand that another believer receive such man-made terms or creeds or demands us to receive anything else. So I'm not going to get into a war with, with other believers over doctrine. I'm not going to do it. That is the opposite of what we're told to do. We're told to love. But think and go to God and open up your scripture and search. And let's try to figure this out together. And let's cast off anything that is not biblical. In the end, we hope this couple will be able to produce a little baby we call truth. 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 There are three things that I just have to cover here on the whiteboard to wrap all of this up because it's re they're really interesting. First, uh, Glenn Hill refers to increasing eminence of presentation of um, warning in Scripture, the New Testament, about Christ's second coming. So the year is 30, okay? And about the year Christ died, we think, because he was born somewhere uh, 5 to 3 uh, BC. That's what scholars are now saying. So we think that his death was probably around then. So there's 40 years to 70 AD. How many references are there to his coming in the New Testament? One. It comes from Peter and it's in Acts and he says he's coming but not yet. So it's, it's, it's a little vague. And 18 years before we have two. And uh, this isn't going to be chronologically perfect, but you're going to see an, uh, an increase of imminence of things warning, okay? That's 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 3, where Paul says the same thing. He's coming, but not yet. There's going to be 18 years before, and right now they're at AD 52. AD 56, uh, we had four. And if you're interested in these, I can give them to you. And then 12 years before, we had four more. Now, it's interesting, at AD 60, 10 years out, the persecution began 
the Roman persecution and the wars and all this started happening. There's only one then, and it comes in Acts, but it's the use of the word mellow and the phrase about to begins at this point in time. All right. Then after that, nine years before, we have four. And then eight years before, we have two, both saying again about two. And then when we get five years out, we have seven. And then when we get one year out before 70 AD, we have 10. So we can see that the word of God, which we can trust, was telling them in order of the years as it drew closer and closer to one generation, uh, this generation shall not pass. This was the year that Jesus said in Matthew 24, 40 years right here. This is when it was. And this is how many references there were in scripture dated at that time saying he's coming. Wendy, do your job. Wendy is our, I try to write as high as I can so I make her jump. <laughs> Okay, there's the first thing I wanted to point out to you. Second illustration. Wendy, are you done yet? Oh, my gosh. I'm taking a zero off your paycheck, Wendy. That's it. Call human resources <laughs> down here. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, very good. I want to show you something I just discovered the other day. Looking at scripture. We have the Old Testament. God's dealing with the house of Israel children of Israel, okay? We have Genesis through Malachi. Got that? And in that, we have then a silent period, the intertestamentary period, 400 years. And then we have the beginning of the New Testament, we have the Gospels. And in the Gospels, of course, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This was the fulfillment of of everything these guys have been promised back here of God's fulfillment with the Messiah, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then we have Acts. This was the thing I wanted to point out. Acts comes in and there's an ebb and flow of, of the Old Testament kind of falling backward now and the New Testament pushing forward. Do we have evidence in Acts of this happening? Let me tell you something. Acts 1 through 7, 57, all, talks, is all about the original apostles, Peter. Then in 58, Acts 7, 58, Saul's name is mentioned once. Suddenly, Saul. Okay? And then we go into uh, Acts chapter 8, the next chapter, and it says, this Saul is reaping, wreaking havoc with the church. And then you go, and then we have Saul's conversion, uh, Acts chapter 9, 31 verses, bringing Saul in. So we have, we start off, and it's all apostles that Jesus called. And then we have one little reference to Saul, and then we see more with Saul. And then it goes back to Peter, and it talks about Peter introducing the gospel to the, uh, to, um, not Corinthians. Who did he give the gospel to? First one, eight with the net. Ate the net, the animals on the net. Starts with a C. All these scholars. Joppa, yeah, was that Joppa? Um, whatever his name was, it'll come to me. No, not the centurion, the other one. Anyway, so, and then we come to Paul again in Acts 11, 25 through 30. And then in Acts 12, James is killed. One of the apostles is killed, okay? And then Acts 12 talks about Peter. And then Acts 12, 24, 25 talks about Paul. And then in chapter 15, Paul confronts Peter. He confronts him with Peter and his hypocrisy. Face to face, Paul says. After that, after that confrontation in Acts chapter 15, the rest of the book, uh, chapters 15 through 28, all Paul. All Paul. So we have from Acts chapter 15, all of this being left back where it belongs. And now we have Paul, name change, moving forward. And the rest of Acts talks about him. And then guess what? Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, Timothy, Timothy, Titus, Philemon, 
all Paul, all Paul writing, okay? So it's showing, hey, and then what happens is suddenly we get Hebrews, and it's like, okay, God is going to, we don't know who wrote it. People say it's Paul, but it could have been anybody else. And then we have James. And then we have uh, Peter, first and second. And then we have John, first, second, and third. And then we have Jude. And then we have Revelation, which was, is, in my opinion, a historical recitation of everything that has happened here. And this is all to the Jewish convert in preparation for the end. And that's, the, that's how the Bible is laid out. So again, we have something within the layout of the Bible showing us God's working with the house of Israel. All he's doing, but then he, it's like, okay, I've given you a chance and now I'm going to give you a final shot here and then it's over and it's done. So think about that. I wasn't really clear with it. One last thing. Wendy, attack. If we were to ask someone when Jesus' work or interaction with the house of Israel was over, okay? Some would say at the cross. Some would say when he was resurrected. Some would say when he ascended into heaven, okay? And some are saying he's not done. He's still engaged with the nation of Israel and he's still working with them. And so we have this focus on Israel and Jerusalem and all of that going on. I would suggest that he was engaged with their redemption the house of Israel, for which he came, wherever that was, uh, until he returned. If he hasn't returned, he is still engaged with Israel. If he returned, the engagement with Israel stopped. Judgment fell on Jerusalem, signifying it's done. Temple destroyed, genealogy destroyed, and now all of that is over. Now, how can I say it? because I'm going to appeal to a picture from the Old Testament, all right? And let me explain that to you. You know that the writer of Hebrews, it takes Jesus as the high priest. It says, in times of old, the nation of Israel had a high priest. Once a year, he got all washed and all ready, and he went and he took the, bl uh, the blood of an unblemished lamb, and he went into the temple... He didn't just go into the inner court. He didn't go into the outer court. He went into the Holy of Holies once a year. They went in many times, but once a year for this purpose. And he took the blood into the Holy of Holies. While he was doing that, who was that blood for? The whole nation. What were they doing? They were outside of that temple, that tabernacle. And they were waiting for him who entered into the Holy of Holies with blood to come back out. If he entered in and he never came out, then they would have thought God killed him. And our sins have not been covered. We have not received propitiation for our sins. We're going to be wiped out by God. So they waited outside of the temple for what? For Jesus to exit, for the high priest to exit from it and show he accepted it. He didn't kill me. And then the Jews say, ah, our sins are forgiven for the year. And they would follow with a feast and a celebration, right? Well, listen, when Jesus ascended into heaven, the angel said to the disciples, he's going to return the way he came, okay? And so his work with the house of Israel was not done until like the high priest, he returned from the Holy of Holies where he entered to go, to go before the Father. And anybody on the earth at that time who was a Jewish convert, his return signified that God accepted his work on the cross. You see, and we have that model in the Old Testament. If he didn't return then, then, then we have, okay, it, it hasn't happened. He's still working with Israel. But with everything we've covered, he returned. And so now we can say, done. I'm not anti-Israel, but I have to tell you, there's no difference between them and me or you. There's no difference between a woman and a man since all of this happened. There is no difference between a slave and, and someone who's free. In Christ Jesus, it's all the same now. The middle partition broken down. And he ascended. God accepted it. He held him back. He did what he was going to do. And then he sent him to cast judgment upon Israel, saving those who were in his church, the apostolic church, destroying those who had killed him. And it was finished. And the book is a history of that. So I hope that it's helped some of you and we're going to continue on. Let's go to 
we have one call on here, Jeff in West Jordan. If Christ already came, which I really think he did now with all this information, what happened after he came? What happened was um, Constantine, there were some early believers, Gentile converts, I'm assuming, maybe some Jews. I don't know the answer to that. But I know that the gospel went forward. Paul launched into sharing the gospel to the Gentiles. He went to many places. They were not all present at Jerusalem when he returned. And so the gospel has gone forward now. And here's the deal. The scripture says that God writes his law upon our hearts and upon our minds now. And all of the physical things of the New and Old Testament are fulfilled. We now walk by the Spirit. And if we gather together and study this book, it's just to grow in faith and to get with like-minded believers if you want. But it's the Holy Spirit that is guiding us. We are not playing church anymore. It has no purpose. All it does is create division. It creates exclusiveness, inclusiveness, exclusiveness. It creates so much difficulty. It makes men and their dreams take over God's will. It's a money-centered. It's power-centered. It's politically based. Jesus' message of the good news becomes something that we fight for in the streets. All of that stuff has been the result of what's happened since. But he is working through individuals who are seekers of truth, who want to pursue him. And they are in every church out there that is teaching Christ to some extent or not. Maybe even churches that aren't. He knows who are his. That's what I believe has happened to the church. What's up? Oh, Jeff is on the line. Are we ready? Oh, I did it wrong. Jeff. Jeff. I think I hung up on him. I got a lot of emails. Let me cover them quickly. They're good. How much time, Derek? I can't see it. Okay. Uh, This is from Melissa. Have you considered that just like the rules for the Jews were for the Old Testament and grace and the apostolic church for the new, there might be something different for us? Uh, I have. And I think there is something different from us. Uh, 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 the apostolic church had rules to keep them together until the coming of Christ. With the influx of Judaism trying to destroy them and all this other stuff, the apostles came in and said, these are the rules for our operation. Those rules, when we read them today, many of them are ridiculous. They don't apply. A woman should have her hair not plated or speak in the church or a, or a, a true widow has to wash the feet of the saints. All of this stuff doesn't apply to us. And if we can say those don't apply, who has the right to say these do and these don't? So we have to see it had a different purpose. So we do have a different, they're not, how can I say this? Because they don't all apply. So our rules are, these are our rules, which were different than the New Testament church. We walk by faith and we love. And the primary rule is to love. And you can't really do that without faith in Christ. And that's a whole other discussion, but we walk by faith and we love. That's, those are the rules of the game. Everything else, which churches make a big deal out of, are just smoking pot. It's just a joke. It, it is, has nothing to do with reality, with an individual's relationship with Christ. It has to do with plain church. So there's my answer to that. Uh, is it possible to have Mormonism without Joseph Smith, James Clark Acts? I think uh, that, that's what they're trying to do. Uh, they're starting to get that way. You know, they have to uh, kind of cut themselves off from that. And I think they're trying to do that. Is it possible to have the Bible without one of the writers since 40 writers of the Bible encompass all the centuries? Maybe. Um, would the Bible be true if one writer was removed? I think the uh, Bible would be true if it, there was one word left. Uh, you know, so if, if one was removed, Martin Luther wished James never had made it in. And there were several books that almost didn't make it in. Hebrews was one of them. So I personally wish Revelation wasn't put in, but, uh, you know, that, that's me. And I'm, God, don't strike me dead for that. It's just because it's so hard for me to understand. But so that was that one. Uh, and then we have uh, one more. Are we out? Okay, next week, I'm going to start off by reading the emails. I've got a stack of them that we've put off and put off and put off. And I know those are interesting to people to cover questions. And then we're going to just start touching on, is punishment eternal? What does the Bible truly say? And this is another sacred cow. For some reason, Christians want to believe 
that when someone dies, they go and God has them burning literally in flames forever and ever 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 and ever. Forever. What does the Bible say? That's what we're going to cover next week here on Heart of the Matter. We'll see you next week. Good job, Wendy. I'm on a ride, going nowhere. I am an existential cowboy on the wind. And I won't be coming out, I'm going in. This man's awake. The storms are rising, the dawn's awaiting till the hunt.